This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So this story, no doubt about it, on investors' minds today, it's among our most read as well on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's about President Trump reinstating tariffs on steel uh, and aluminum from Argentina and Brazil, and he's tying it to U.S. Farmo. So let's get into this with Joe Doe. He's metals and mining reporter at Bloomberg News. He is joining us on the phone in New York. Joe, good to have you here uh, with Jason and myself. So, okay, this news may be unexpected, safe to say, when we think about some of the trade uh, situations that we're in right now. Tell us about what this means and the implications of it. Right. I mean, on the face of it, it's uh, reinstating steel tariffs on Argentina and Brazil and, and, uh, and, and in a way, uh, I guess. But, but really what it is is a, is a whole other reaction, right? So the idea that, that Trump was putting out this morning was that you have some sort of uh, currency manipulation or, or similar action being done by these countries. Again, again, this is according to the president. And so he feels like it is unfairly giving them an advantage, um, especially when it comes to uh, farming sales. And so therefore, he's putting these tariffs back on these countries, which he had uh, taken off in exchange for a quota uh, way back in August of, of 2018. So sure, it's, it's one action on the steel world, which is a world I understand, uh, but really it's a much uh, it's a much bigger trade uh, a trade equation that he's working on here. Right. And so help us understand the breadth of that equation, Joe, because obviously this ties into a much broader trade discussion or a much broader trade strategy, as you allude to, that the administration is undertaking, that President Trump is leading the way on. So help us understand yeah. how it fits into the broader picture. Right. I mean, you're talking really what we're looking at is soybeans here, right? Yeah. I mean, soybeans are obviously a major export for Brazil um, and, and, and Argentina getting lumped into this as well. And so China is suddenly importing more soybeans from these Latin American countries. Uh, they're importing less from the United States. Um, and then obviously uh, the way he kind of, you know, is, is reasoning in his mind is that uh, by, by uh, you know, making their currencies cheaper, it makes it cheaper for China to buy from them and therefore us less competitive, the U.S. less competitive. So he says, well, fine, one of the retaliations I can do against these, uh, these trade partners in Argentina and Brazil is by putting the steel tariffs back on them. That's one that actually matters a little bit to Brazil. Brazil does account for about 3.5% of the steel we consume in the United States. Um, but on the grand scale, this seems like a, a minor kind of almost shot across the bow uh, in a way to get the attention of uh, you know, Brazil and, and, and Argentina on the soybean issue as it pertains to, the, to China. To be fair, I do think that, you know, some of this, the trade positions um, that we have been talking about with China and elsewhere in the world over the last year or so, um, I think it's safe to say that there are many say it's time to kind of rethink, um, yeah. you know, what was agreed upon years ago. Things have changed and maybe the U.S. is at a disadvantage. Having said that, Joe, I mean, is this about the president going after a better trade position for the United States or a better political position for himself in the United States? It, it, it could be a little, it could be a little of both, right? I mean, this, this has constantly been 
kind of the argument of people who've been supportive of Trump's tariffs, right, is that there are so many deals that are just outdated and these need to be changed. But as we know, I mean, the president understands politics. And when he tweets, he, he does so for some sort of political reason. So I, I think it might be fair to say it's, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. Uh, I know that some, seems like a, a cop out, but, but I think that's probably fair to say. And so, you know, you follow the whole trade world so closely, Joe, like, what are the broader implications of this? And maybe more pointedly, where does this go next? How do people start to react, uh, especially given that a lot of times these new tariffs or these new initiatives aren't fully expected? Yeah, I I mean, Jason, this uh, this morning I was talking to a number of folks in the steel industry, and I said, is this something you were expecting or was on your radar? Because if you remember, the uh, Trump implemented higher steel tariffs in Turkey and then and then took them off, and people were kind of expecting that. This tweet this morning came out of nowhere, right? And it and it just reminds us of what we've gone through for the past three years now, and that is sometimes the president goes out with these trade changes or these trade remarks that, that even people in the industry weren't expecting. And so it just goes back to what we've constantly been writing about, which is this uncertainty, right? Uncertainty doesn't help anybody. It doesn't even help the people support the tariffs in the first place. Uh, and, and I think that's just kind of the theme that we're seeing come up today uh, with his re-implementing these tariffs on Argentina and Brazil. Joe, in your understanding of trade, too, I do wonder, as this lingers on and we have more and more spats with various nations around the country, uh, around the world, uh, and in particular, mm-hmm. I think about China. I mean, China, in the meantime, used to get a lot more soybeans and agricultural products from us, and now they are opting to go to other countries like Brazil and Argentina. And I do wonder, you know, when everything is tallied up and everything is hopefully resolved, you know, do we lose in the end the United States? That, that, that really is the big worry right now. And, and one of the big things that's coming up in, in the, the, the lead up to the campaign for 2020, right, it is, you know, is Trump doing enough to make sure that he's keeping farmers on his side? Is he doing enough to keep uh, the people in the steel industry on his side? Or is there a worry that because of what he's done, it's actually hurting demand in both industries in the United States? I think that is a question that many of us in the news world are going to be observing a lot closer. But, uh, you know, already I, I think we're, we're seeing those questions rise to the surface even, even before right. 2020. Heck, we're not even to the holidays yet. And That's right. Very much in the center. Uh, great point. Well, good reporting. We really appreciate it. Joe Doe, always good to catch up with you. Metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone in New York City. All right. So I have to say I was down in Atlanta over the holiday and where my folks live is very close to major malls, Lenox Square, Fitz Plaza, Simon Properties. Actually, we talked about him yeah. at the year ahead. I have to say, there didn't seem to be a huge amount of traffic, but there was a huge amount of traffic, it feels like, online. That seems to be the theme yeah. that's emerging. Let's put that question and many more to Harley Finkelstein, Chief Operating Officer of Shopify, joining us on the phone from Ottawa. This is a very, very busy time of the year, I can imagine. Uh, Harley, we're very grateful that you're spending some time with Carol and myself. Oh, always great to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So tell us what we know so far, because... It feels like a pretty robust shopping season, but give us the contours of it. Yeah, let me start with some of the high-level numbers to set the context. So last year, 2018, if you look at Black Friday all the way through Cyber Monday, uh, for that four-day period, we saw about $1.5 billion uh, across Shopify and across all of our merchants. Uh, This year, we're, we're seeing significantly higher GMV. So to put that into context, on 
Black Friday 2018, we saw about $573 million in product sold on Shopify. This year, we sold over $900 million, so about a 57% increase. The other thing is uh, Black uh, Cyber Monday is not even halfway done, certainly if you include the West Coast. And we're already way past the $2 billion mark for, uh, for GMV, for products sold on our platform. So I think what we're seeing is, number one, as you eloquently put it, online is really kicking butt this, this, uh, this holiday season. But more importantly, it seems uh, quite obvious that consumers are really voting with their wallets for individual brands and independent businesses. Um, they are, this is, I would articulate this as the direct-to-consumer shopping holiday season. And the heroes of the season are really the entrepreneurs rather than the large-scale department stores. Well, see, and that's what I was, I was curious, how much more you can dig down into the information that you get. Because I'm curious, one of the things or one of the themes that we've been hearing when it comes to retail is your brick and mortar where you can go order online, but then pick up on the, pick up at the store. And then while you're in the store, you shop even more. So I'm just wondering, um, dig a few layers deeper and tell us, you know, what you're seeing about how the consumer is shopping. You mentioned it's not big, big names, it's smaller entrepreneurs. But what else can you tell us, Harley? Yeah, a couple of things I would say. First of all, just in terms of the actual magnitude of the scale, uh, right now, if you look at the Shopify uh, shopping index, you'll notice there's about 600,000 products being sold every single minute and about uh, $600,000 being sold every minute, 6,000 products being sold every minute. On Friday at the peak, we saw $1.5 million every minute and 13,000 orders per minute. The reason that's important is because we're not talking about big box stores. We're talking about the retailers like Allbirds and Bombas and Tommy mm. John Underwear and Magnolia and Gymshark. So we're seeing something really uh, fascinating that we haven't seen before. To your point, though, in terms of this multi-channel, buy online, pick up in store, or buy in store, have it shipped to you. What's interesting is that the modern retail brands, let's just use Magnolia or Allbirds, for example, they don't really view their online and their offline retail channels as separate channels. For them, it's all retail. And they use one channel to help the other channel out. However, if you contrast that with some of the larger retailers, let's just say Best Buy, for example, they actually categorize those, those online sales and offline sales completely separately, which I think is actually quite misguided. And I think the retailers that are, are going to be very successful now and in the future are just going to do retail everywhere. And they're going to allow their, enable their, their customers to buy wherever they want, be that on Instagram or Facebook or in a marketplace or online or offline. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think is interesting about this particular buying season is that the categories, the verticals of types of products are the same. We're still seeing things like uh, kitchen appliances and cosmetics and apparel. The difference, though, rather than buying kitchen appliances from you know, one of the big names, they're buying it from companies uh, like BlendJet. They're buying, it, uh, they're buying um, pet products from Turbo. They're buying their, uh, their cosmetics from Drunk Elephant and ColourPop and Kylie Cosmetics. So the categories of product verticals haven't really changed. The difference is that consumers are going directly to the brand, the entrepreneur, the small business, or the larger business, and, and they're completely just intermediating the entire retail model. Well, right. it's interesting, Drunk Elephant, that means they're also going to Estee Lauder. Yeah. Right? right? Isn't right. that who bought it? I yeah, think. yeah, ultimately. All right, Harley Finkelstein, always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Chief Operating Officer for Shopify, joining us on the phone from Ottawa. So a little bit of shopping. I have to say, I am much more, I think it's basically like doing this show uh, and talking to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of experts on this. I am very conscious about even when I'm online, where I'm shopping, trying to go to some of those more distinct, uh, as yeah. Harley said, uh, 
direct to consumer brands. I just want to say Drunk Elephant was bought by Shiseido. I forgot. Oh, I right. knew it was one of the big, big um, cosmetic brands. There you go. Just You're a it. Drunk Elephant fan. I like Drunk Elephant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm. like to, you know, be around a Drunk Elephant, but yeah. Well, yeah. I think generally people <laughs> avoid Drunk Elephants. Maybe Note Elephants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, trade certainly was on the agenda just a couple weeks ago in Beijing. Andy Brown was there, the impresario behind it all, the Bloomberg New Economy Forum we're talking about. He's the editorial director. He's back in New York City, wiser, maybe a little weary still, uh, (laughs) but uh, seemingly lucid. We're going to find out uh, as we welcome him into the conversation. Andy, great to see you. Good to see you. Good to be back. Congrats on a huge event, Uh, news making in a lot of ways, certainly timely. Uh, So as you and the team sort of synthesize it all, obviously it's a fast moving world, but what do you take away? Well, look, a couple of things. We had a we had a great conversation. Uh, people said we wouldn't be able to have an open, frank exchange in Beijing right now, and we did. Um, we heard positive things about the global economy. We heard negative things about the global economy and about Chinese industrial policy and trade. And the skies didn't fall down, uh, and we were embraced, uh, frankly, by by the Chinese government. We saw a delegation went to see Xi Jinping. Um, there was a dinner with Liu He, his chief trade negotiator, Wang Qishan, arguably number eight in the, the vice president in, in, in the regime, made the keynote speech. Uh, above all, I think, though, you know, you get this incredibly powerful sense that the global business community is feeling disoriented. Mm. Um, I mean, really, people have no idea which direction we're heading. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, technology is is forging ahead of leaps and bounds, right? right? Artificial intelligence, all of the applications, driverless cars, Internet of Things, or gene editing, and so on. And on the, on the other hand, geopolitics pulling in precisely the opposite direction, you know, and and you had um, Henry Kissinger. He, he's the he's the co-chair of our of our, our, our board of advisors. He was being interviewed by Neil Ferguson. And you know you have to remember, you know, Dr. Kissinger. One of his signal achievement, maybe his crowning mm-hmm. achievement, was this breakthrough with China. You know, and 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 moving the U.S. and China out of the Cold War and during the Nixon into, administration. During the Nixon administration, to right. era of, of rapprochement. And he's being interviewed by Neil Ferguson, and, and he's looking back on history. And he's concluding, sadly, that we're, in his words, in the foothills of a Cold War, another Cold War. You know, and he's warning about the tensions between the U.S. and China and drawing parallels with World War One. you know, and saying, look, you know, it, it, it didn't take much in World War One, a, a, a little bit of trouble in the Balkans, you know, and, 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 and you're in a, in, in a global conflict. And he said, you know, he, he was very frank. He said, look, conflict these days would be way worse than World War One." You know, and he wasn't the only speaker who was really quite despondent about the direction that politics, global politics, are, are heading in. Well, and that's what I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, tis the season, the ghost of Christmas past. But that's what it seems like so many of the conversations were hearkening back to other eras when there were some really serious situations. Um, and, you know, I do wonder, 
when everything was said and done though, Andy, did you feel like people saw a path forward or was it too late? Uh, look, uh, you know, I don't think anybody sees a breakthrough uh, anytime soon. The, 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 you know, we talked about trade. We talked a lot yeah, about trade. So, yeah. um, you know, it was the thing that, that hung over the whole conference, the U.S.-China trade war. I honestly don't believe there was anybody in that room who felt that this phase one trade deal between the U.S. and China was going to do anything more than paper over the cracks, that we really are heading into a technology cold war. I think that was that was the sense. And you had, you know, you had Jerry Young, the co-founder of Yahoo, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, <clears throat> Guys, we're heading back to the dark ages. You know, you had Yang Yuanqing, who's the CEO of Lenovo, which is, you know, a Chinese uh, a tech company, arguably that's, that straddles that, you know, China-U.S. Uh, divide more than any other company. And he was talking about 5G and talking about the real possibility that in 5G we could have bifurcated global technology standards. And he was like, guys, you know, we need unified technology standards. This is the era of 5G. Let's not go back to the era of 3G mm, and right. 2G. You know, so people are, people are thinking just at a time when all of these breakthrough technologies are coming on stream, you know, people are now warning about lurching backwards into this sort of dark history. What did you get from the Chinese officials and you guys in the conversations that they the same too, or would they rather see some kind of warmer relationship surely, with the United States? I, well, sure. I'm sure they. I think everybody would, would would in China would like to see warmer relations with with the U.S. So the as I said, the, the, the good news is that we had an open conversation. So you know, Charlene Barshevsky, she came out. She was wow. actually one of my first speakers. Yeah. And she stood there, and she was very frank and very very strong uh, about Chinese industrial policy, about IP theft, about subsidies former to state rep, industries. Right? Former She was yeah. she was the, Charlene Barshevsky. She Huge. negotiated right. China's entry into the right. into the World Trade Organization in two thousand and one. And you know, she said, "Listen, we expected you guys." To, to be more open and, and, you know, that you would converge with free market systems. And in fact, you're heading in exactly the opposite direction. So, you know, and, and so we, you know, we, the, the Chinese leadership uh, heard this and, you know, and, and it was bold, a great, it was right? bold, to be in Beijing right? and say that. Yeah. On the other hand, you got very little sense of introspection. I mean, it was all about, you know, why is America doing this to yeah. us? You yeah. know, why are we being bullied. I mean, here we are, globalists, we're free traders, and big bad, you know, Donald Trump comes along and starts beating up on us. And very little sense that actually it may be something that we're doing yeah. and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to require uh, deep, profound, meaningful changes in our system as well as in the way that, right. that the West looks at us. Uh, only about 30 seconds left, Andy, but, you know, you had some big bankers, big investors there as well. What was the sense you got from sort of the world of money as to what happens next and how cautious they may be? Well, the the, the real warning there was, you know, what and, and this goes back to this idea of, of, of a world that's breaking apart where you had Hank Paulson saying, look, you know, uh, what what would happen? What would happen in the next? In, what's going to happen in the next downturn? You yeah. know, in two thousand and eight, we prevented a meltdown of the global economy because we had collaboration between central banks all over the world. 
in the current world that we're in, you know, with the U.S. and China at loggerheads, could we get the same sort of cooperation or would it be a case of everybody sort of diving That's into the bunkers and, and, and dive, you know, taking yeah. cover? All right. Well, congratulations. It's great to have you back here in New York City. Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. Their namesake forum happened just a couple weeks ago in Beijing. A lot of lessons uh, coming out of that and looking ahead to next year. All right, this is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg, and for a good reason. Honestly, you write a headline that says the billionaire hedge fund manager with quantum ambitions. Every Bloomberg customer is going to click on that. And there's a great tale underneath it as well. Nishant Kumar wrote this story, hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. It's in the upcoming edition of Business Week. The editor of that fine magazine, Joel Weber, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Nishant, congrats on a great story. Tell us what is going on at CQS. Well, they are trying to bring in this new tech. Uh, just to be clear, they are not going to uh, be transforming into a quant shop. But increasingly, what we are seeing in the market, that all these fundamental security speaker relied on humans to pick securities for a living, they are increasingly being pushed to a corner by a new tech who are making information, consuming information so fast that humans cannot compete with. And the only way humans are going to compete with and maybe beat in their own game is, uh, you know, using more technology. And quantum computing seems, seems to be the next stage of technological revolution that's going to uh, sweep the asset management industry. And it seems that CQS is trying to get ready for that era. Uh, They're not going to launch quant funds, but they they are going to use this technology to enhance their money-making power to hedge, to manage risk. And to be clear, Nishant, there's that day of, of having quantum be like a plug and play option. That's not really anywhere near, right? It's not happening this quarter. Not at all. Uh, this tech is still in labs and Google's and IBM's of the world are still experimenting with it. There is no practical use as such. Uh, this tech is uh, at best uh, at least three to five years away. Uh, but it requires a lot of time, I think, and to adapt it to the financial world, you need even more time. So, yeah, I mean, we are, you know, it's a long-term game for them. What's fascinating is here's a guy who has just made a lot of money, right, making smart calls, uh, and as the headline says, you know, smart um, judgment calls specifically. What does it say when he is looking at something more aggressively like quantum and 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 looking more at technology to figure out where the best investment opportunities are i mean we all know that the ground uh, is shifting in the asset management industry human traders are not performing they are not outperforming their indexes clients are allocating more and more money either to index funds or quantitative funds to get that human element out of it if you look at hedge fund industry alone, a third of assets managed by uh, hedge funds, which is $3 trillion, is under quant funds, for example. 
So all these managers, I mean, they are smart people. They realize that where, uh, you know, the wind is headed and they need to prepare for it and, and, and try to exploit it. Now they can't transform their entire strategy, which they have built over the last many decades, but they can definitely and surely use some of these futuristic tech to stay ahead in the game or at least to stay in the game. And so, Joel, I guess I have a question for you. So how does this fit into sort of the a lot of the bigger themes? Because it feels like it does in, in some things that you're trying to touch on in the magazine right now. Yeah, I think it brings us back to a line of, of stories that we've been doing for, uh, honestly, like bigger than, than anything I'm responsible for, but that Bloomberg has really covered, which is the, the difficult life of being a hedge fund manager. Yeah. And especially it gets to this element that Nishant talks about in CQS, long only strategies are the ones that are working right, right now. And long only doesn't mean you need to be in a hedge fund, you know, so there's cheaper options out there. So for CQS and other hedge fund managers out there, they're looking for every little advantage that they can get. And that's really the point of him and his interest in quantum, I think, which is this is a potentially game changing technology. What One that could like, absolutely change not only finance but everything we know about technology everything it almost becomes this skeleton key i've heard it be referred to so uh for a hedge fund manager even being able to think about the horizon like that to say like are we ready for whatever that looks like i think it just speaks to sort of a different way of thinking than we'd normally encounter and i love this analogy where um one of the former uh uh people who worked at cqs says that one of the things that distinguish them is that him thinking in three dimensions yeah right yeah. you know it, it just makes you feel like oh there's a there's a whole other dimension right. here well, that maybe we can trade in and make some money off it's of. so many levels above active versus passive we, yeah. which is right. where you have to go when that you know Right. That is a two-dimension game, basically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what does it take to actually compete? Well, looking for every single advantage you can think of. Exactly. And humans and machines sort of melding in many ways. All right. It's a great story. Nishant Kumar is hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. His story on the terminal today. It will be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Editor of that magazine, Joel Weber, here with us in New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Sean Cruz. He's manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade. Joining us on the phone from Chicago. I'm Sean. Good to talk with you. I mean, on a day where we've seen uh, the equity markets back off a little bit over trade concerns again, and it's not just U.S.-China trade, but the trade disputes uh, seeming to broaden out. Um, how do you see the trade? Because we've had quite a run up in the equity markets this year. 
And that's what this looks like. There is some concern, not only over the trade disputes, but we got some some pretty uh, weak manufacturing data here in the U.S. to start the day off as well. So I think that's adding to it. But I think going into December, um, it's not unusual to see um, profit taking. And I think right now investors are going to be a little bit more uh, quick to pull the trigger on on taking some profits, especially if you're looking at some of these tech names that have have done fairly well this year, but are also um, have a lot of exposure to the the outcome of the uh, the U.S. China uh, trade dis- uh, deal, so I, I think it makes sense. You're seeing tech and industrials really uh, you know pull us lower to, to uh, today. All right. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, people are like yeah, trade, trade, trade. I'm shopping here. I'm doing some Cyber Monday. Uh, what is going on on that front? What do you see so far, sort of coming out? of the Black Friday holiday and focusing now on what people are clicking and buying. It's interesting that Black Friday really is something that uh, gets a lot of the coverage, but Cyber Monday is actually becoming the, the bigger revenue generating yeah. day. And, and it looks like we're on pace to, to set another record. I think we're, we're tracking to about $9.4 billion in sales uh, today alone. So if you're, if you're looking at some of these retailers, uh, the retailers that have found a way to right-size their business in terms of getting uh, customers to not only come into the stores, but also getting customers to come and shop online, the, the uh, retailers that have sort of uh, perfected that omni-channel approach, I think, are going to be some of the retailers that could potentially uh, do fairly well uh, this holiday shopping season. And so who do you like there? Do you like a Walmart? Do you like a Target? I mean, both of those, those are the names that I would uh, sort of equate with what you just said in terms of omni-channel. And that was in November. We actually saw that Walmart and Target uh, did better in uh, online sales than uh, than Amazon, even so, uh, in terms of just growth. So uh, those two names certainly are in that that list of companies that have figured out not only the to the response to the whole brick and mortar problem that was plaguing the retail sector for a while, but they've also found a way to really uh, grow out their e-commerce businesses. One thing, though, that is interesting to to track and, and take a look at, keep in mind, is that the retailers that have a lot of their revenue concentrated in uh, in December in terms of when they drive that revenue, taking names like Best Buy, they actually uh, tend to underperform um, in the month of December. And so some of the, the more, uh, I'd say, you know, diversified uh, companies in terms of when they bring their revenue throughout the year, they tend to perform better. So there's also names like Home Depot and Lowe's that, mm. that do pretty well in December because for them, you know, their, their big uh, month or their big uh, time of year for them to get a lot of the revenue is actually not concentrated in December. It's usually spread throughout the spring. So you can also look at names like Home Depot's and Lowe's if you want to get some exposure to the retail sector, but maybe not risk it all and, and they better make December work or else. Well, how do you see Amazon in all of this? I think Amazon, they're, they're actually, what I thought I, I was interesting, you're starting to see some of the goods producers, and we just heard this news from Nike, that they're not going to offer their products through Amazon right. anymore. I think that's something that could actually pressure uh, Amazon a little bit. And the reason is that you know a lot of those gifts and, and things that uh, certainly the younger demographic likes, that when you're going out and shopping for, say, for your kids, you're probably going to want, Nike's going to pop up on quite a few uh, Christmas lists, I'm sure. So I think things like that can not bode well for Amazon. They're still right up there at the top, though. But like we said, Walmart and Target seem to be growing uh, e-commerce sales at a little bit faster pace uh, than, than Amazon right around now. So later on this week, we're going to hear from both Kroger and Dollar General. I 
believe Dollar General especially is one that I'm always interested in owing to a little bit of their history, but also sort of their economic indicator-ness, as it were. Uh, what do you make of that name? Uh, so I think the, the off-price retailers, the discount retailers are also something to look at. And it, it's actually a great point that sometimes if, if the discount retailers, the off-price retailers are really knocking it out of the park, that actually doesn't bode well for some right. of the stores that usually uh, you know, are driving their, their revenue on some of the more high-priced, high-price tag type of items. And so if you see something out of a Dollar General that really makes it look like they're they're, they're growing, there's a strong demand for their products, that could be something that could be the, the first warning sign that the consumer's starting to turn a little bit more cautious. And we've even heard this, if you say, look at Nordstrom's earnings, people are starting to focus in on, you know, when Nordstrom's going out there, where's their revenue coming from? Is it coming from the full price stores or is it coming from their discount off price uh, outlets? I think that was something interesting that you can read into Nordstrom as well, because if nothing else, it, it can really just indicate that margins could come under pressure across the retail sector if a lot of these uh, retailers are going to have to start lowering their prices to get consumers to come in. So that would be a good read-through from Dollar General. So if you had some new money to put to work, Sean, and it, you were looking at the retail space specifically, where would you put it? I would I would avoid the uh, like I said the, the big department stores and I would look to something like Walmart, um, Target, and also if you maybe want to avoid the risk that you know the month of December the consumer just isn't showing up, then you can look at names like Home Depots and Lowe's. I think Lowe's is maybe a little bit more of an interesting uh, investment case because they are starting to find ways to close that gap with Home Depot. So those are some of the names that I would look at if I if I want to start putting money to work in a, in the retail sector at the moment. What's the most worrisome thing for you uh, out there as an investor right now, Sean? Well, I'm going to be looking at uh, the jobs data this uh, Friday. I think it's something to focus in on, see you know what kind of wage growth they're getting out there, because I think income creation is something to keep track of. Uh, right now, the consumer is really pulling the U.S. economy along. So if you start to see any sort of indication that you know wage growth is starting to slow down, or even after we get the jobs report later on, we have consumer sentiment that same day. If you see any sort of indication that the consumer is starting to turn more cautious, I think that's something that you should really focus on because that would mean the slowdown in manufacturing, which we've, we've seen now for four months in a row, uh, we've seen the consumer able to, to still remain strong, remain uh, confident, wanting to go out there and spend. If you start to see uh, signs that maybe the consumer is going to get dragged down along with, the, uh, along with the manufacturing sector, that would be something that I think would be uh, particularly concerning. All right. We're going to leave it there. Great to talk to you. Sean Cruz, as always, manager of Trader Strategy out at TD Ameritrade on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.